Support for this podcast is provided by Cosmic, a Portland-based agency consisting of technologists, storytellers, and strategists who help nonprofits and B Corps quickly grow revenue and impact. Start growing your mission-driven organization with Cosmic at AmplifyPDX.com. Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From That Cast Creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the PDX Executive Podcast. Here we are, December. I can't believe it. This will be one of the last episodes of the year. I'm actually gonna be taking a few weeks off, but this is a topic I'm personally very interested in, and I'm really excited to have our next guest, Radhika Dutt, who's the author of Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. Welcome, Radhika. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Dan. So, you know, I, I was able to get a copy of your book and, and, and you know, dig into some of your presentations. And I think one term I really love that you coined, we're in the midst of an iteration epidemic. <laughs> so I think a good place to start is just tell us a little bit about uh, the book, and then we can kind of really get into um, the product management thing. So the book is about how we can build world-changing products really systematically. And the reason I realized that we really needed this methodology to be able to very systematically build such great products is, you know, what is what has come out of Silicon Valley and the mantras that we've truly internalized about how do you build products and companies is you have to iterate until you find product market fit. Just keep trying different things to see what works in quotes, right? And that's what I mean by this iteration epidemic. We've come to believe that if we just iterate long enough, and if you keep pivoting uh, and iterating, you'll eventually find that nirvana of delighting customers and building this successful product. And the reality though, right, I've seen this repeatedly, is whether you're an entrepreneur or a large company with lots of money, you literally have two to three pivots before you run out of money and momentum. Even in a large company, like if you have lots of money, you still run out of momentum because you keep pivoting like this so many times and people go like, okay, the leadership has no idea what they're doing, right? And then you kind of lose momentum along the way. Right. And so that's what I mean by this iteration epidemic. What's happened is that, you know, as we've uh, really adopted Lean Startup as a methodology, we have kind of uh, come to think that you don't need a vision to get started. You can just start to try things out and find your vision along the way. And herein lies the problem because that's what leads to us continuing to iterate, trying things, and you run out of money or momentum. And the burning question to me that I wanted to answer in Radical Product Thinking is, can we take an alternative? Is there a cure to this iteration epidemic? 
can we, instead of uh, falling trapped to the situation epidemic, can we build successful products really step-by-step and in a repeatable way? And that's what I answer. Yeah. And I know it's not one or the other because you talk about needing both, right? It's a little bit of a a marriage of them. Stepping back a little bit, this iteration kind of mentality, when did that take hold? Like what was due, not to get like, I don't want to get too into the history, but I think it's important to kind of um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And that's a really good question because the way the iteration epidemic started was it's grounded in the VC business model. Mm. If we think about how VCs work, you as a VC invest in about 10 companies. Out of that, you only need one to be wildly successful. Everything else, you know, you want it to fail quickly or be really successful. Why? Because as a VC, you want to see quick returns, right? You don't want these middling companies that are doing like so-so and you keep putting money into it. That's not a good way for a VC to make money. So you either want it to fail quickly or, of course, be wildly successful. And so what they really discovered in this model is, well, let's try lots of things to see what works. And then, you know, they can put lots of money behind that one uh, horse that seems to be winning the race. Right. And out of this model came out a few uh, unicorns, like think about Twitter and Slack and Uber. And so we have really looked at these successes. And it's a little bit of this survivor bias, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where you see some successes and you say, okay, well, this is how we build good products. And it, but, but the reality is it's the equivalent of saying, uh, I'm just going to lick lots of trees in the hope of finding maple syrup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you do this enough, yes, eventually you'll, you'll find maple yeah. syrup, but that's not a strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's like you're alluding to this world of zombie startups, kind of, <laughs> they call them, right? So you said something really interesting I never thought about. It's it like you have two or three uh, pivots. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's fine if you're investing, like you said, you're, you want companies to do that because you want the cream to rise to the top a little bit as far as in, you know, what you're investing in. But as an entrepreneur, as a company, you want to be a little more strategic. And I think that's a big part of your book. So we can get into what you call shifting to a vision driven mentality a little bit. Right. Exactly. And the other point you made earlier is I'm not against iterations. And I'm not against pivots. So just to be very clear on that, I think there is a place for iteration. There is a place for pivots, but it all has to be driven by exactly what you said, being vision driven. We have to be driven by what's the change that we want to create. Uh, And it's iterations. They're like driving fast. It's like having a Ferrari. You know, when we optimize for how fast we can iterate, that's like, you know, optimizing for having a fast car which is great. I'm not against fast cars, but you just have to still know where you're going. Like, what's your destination? How are you going to navigate to it? Having a fast car is not a guarantee that you'll get to your destination. And that's why you need to marry both iterations as well as having a very clear sense of direction. And how can you be more vision-driven in your iterations? Yeah. And I know uh, we want people to buy the book because you get into this, but let's lay out some steps of how maybe some some tangible things as an entrepreneur versus a small business, maybe that can be done when you're thinking about putting a roadmap out for uh, a product. Perfect. So the first thing is we have to unlearn what a lot of conventional wisdom has taught us about what a good vision is. So until now, you know, we've learned that a good vision is a beehive. That's what every VC will ask you, you know, what's your beehive, a big, hairy, audacious goal. So instead 
it turns out that a good vision actually doesn't have to be big or aspirational. It's not a slogan, first of all. It has to be very detailed. It has to explain the who, what, why, when, and how uh, for your product or for your company. So what I mean by that is it has to say, you know, whose world are you trying to change? And it can't be everyone. It can't be, you know, all consumers or all businesses. It has to be a very specifically identifiable group. Mm. Um, then you say, well, okay, what is their problem? Meaning, what are they trying to do and how are they doing it today? The third question is probably the most important to me, which is, why does the status quo need changing? Because let's face it, maybe it doesn't need changing. And if we cannot answer this question, why is the status quo unacceptable? We have no business starting a company or building a product. And, and sorry, to, I don't want to uh, cut you off, but I think that point is incredibly important. I've been super guilty of that and some of the things I've been a part of uh, business-wise. And so just stopping right there and kind of assessing that for entrepreneurs is really important. Just want to stop there and say that because, again, I've been guilty of that. So sorry. But I love that you point that out. This is the big thing that comes out in a lot of the visioning sessions that I do for product teams. That aha moment of why do we have to do this? What is it that we see about the world that's unacceptable ends up being such an aha moment for the whole group because you realize that, you know, each person on the team has a slightly different picture of why is why must we do this? And it's right. such a bonding experience to realize, oh, that's why. And what's the, is there some, when you're doing these sessions, you're, you know, going in and um, helping teams, is there a threshold for the need? Because like you said, everybody's got their own reason why they see this product, you know, making a difference and go after it. Um, and we, I think during COVID, especially I've seen a lot of things that are just super incremental in what they're creating. And it's like, eh, so I, I don't know, is, is there a kind of methodology there? That's a great question. I that threshold depends on you and your team. Yeah. You know, and, and it's about um, asking that question and feeling like, do we all truly believe in it? Sometimes, you know, a lot of these incremental products or very small changes come up because we don't ask that question enough. Like, is it, uh, we think, let me give you an example. Even yeah. I'm guilty of this, right? Where at a company, we had a, a product for ad tech. And we were saying in terms of why does the world need changing or why is the status quo unacceptable? We were like, oh, it's because it takes salespeople a long time to create a quote for an ad campaign and we must fix that. And if you say, so what? Well, so what if it takes them a long time? Is there a good answer to that? Sometimes you ask the so what question and you realize, oh, actually it doesn't, it turns out that the world doesn't really need changing. It turned out that in, in that particular world, it was TV advertising. Even it took, if it took people a long time to create a quote, it did not matter. Mm. And so that, that our answer to the world is unacceptable because it takes too long was irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And that's the threshold that you have to answer for yourself. Is it truly relevant by asking a few so what questions till you arrive at a point where you're like, there's no, like, uh, we all firmly believe in the answer to that. So what? It is yeah. so bad. Like, we must do something. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, like, bring us into that room. You're leading the, one of these visioning sessions for a team. And it's like a so what question. What are some of the other things, like, uh, you're helping lead teams through when they're just starting on this product management journey? 
Well, one of the things that comes up often, right, is people say, well, we don't know the answers to all these questions. We don't know the answers to the who are we targeting? What does their world look like? So people are very afraid to kind of put it down on paper. And so my work with some of the teams is that it's okay if you don't know the answers to that. This is not an expectation that your vision is never going to change. And that's one of the, again, fundamental uh, fundamentally new ideas that I bring in the book that, mm-hmm. you know, we've always grown up with this thought that once you write a vision, that's it. You can frame it up and it's never going to change. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the whole point, you know, and I have this fill in the blanks or Mad Libs format uh, that I described in the book for writing a vision statement to answer the who, what, why, when, how questions. And the reason I write it as a fill in the blanks questions mm-hmm. is, uh, fill in the blanks statement, sorry, is exactly because This way, you can go change it. A few months down the line, you're going to learn something about your vision and go like, you know what? The answer that I wrote to this question was absolutely wrong. I've learned and I know better now. So, well, go back and you can revise that statement. And that's how you align the team, keep people motivated because you've learned something together as opposed to just a wild pivot where people are like, where did that come from? Why are we pivoting? I don't get it. Yeah. Is there a difference when, uh, as far as your methodology in B2C and B2B products? So I think where we're at in Portland, when we look at startups, the, the startup ecosystem up here, and, and a lot of the, the bigger companies, I guess, that are in technology here, it's really focused on B2B. We're a pretty B2B kind of community up here. Um, so I don't know if that, if it differs. A great question. And also Boston, if I look at that, the ecosystem is very different from California. So yeah. It, it doesn't matter whether you're doing this for B2B or B2C. Um, what really matters is, you know, even if the answer to the whose world are you trying to change is about businesses, it's important to specify, well, what kind of business are we talking about? And maybe it's not specifically a business. Maybe it's the CIO who has a problem and you're solving that problem. So being able to be very specific about whose problem are we solving is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe one other thing I'll say is in terms of this difference between B2B versus B2C, very often, you know, if you have a marketplace, people say, well, let's look at the example of Amazon, right? They have a vision where, uh, well, they have a product that targets both consumers and merchants. So if you have such a marketplace, well, can I write two vision statements where one right. is for the consumer as one is for the merchant? And the answer to that is, no, we really need one vision statement. And every business has to make a choice. You're, you're doing something for one group of people. And the other uh, part of the marketplace is a means to an end. That's not mm. the end group that you're serving. You can mm. still be responsible and create a better world, etc. You don't have to crush the other party. Yeah. Uh, but it is really important to think about whose world are you trying to change uh, and have a single vision to have clarity for your team. And what about, you know, bringing other parts of cross-functional people into the process and even maybe partners, you know, externally, you know, external partners to have these kind of sessions and, and you know, help align first on the vision. Is there any kind of tips or, you know, strategies for that? Yeah. In fact, you know, very often one of the, tests I use for a vision statement, like how do you know if you have a good vision at the end or not, is by actually sharing it with customers. Mm. Because your vision should be such that 
know, if you take yourself out of the picture altogether, even if your company did not exist, is it describing a problem that you want to see solved in the world? And if you have that, then yes, you have a good vision, right? And if that is the kind of vision that you've written, then you should be able to share that with customers and ask them, like, is this, does this problem and the solution that we describe in our vision, does that resonate with you? And if they're not nodding along with that, you know, then you should think about revising that. Like right. that problem and solution should deeply resonate with customers. You, yeah, I mean, during COVID too, I don't know if it's changed because of the way we've changed working, but have you seen just kind of just market different markets? lot more products being created in kind of a vacuum because maybe there isn't as much as an opportunity to talk to potential customers, whether, you know, the million conferences we were all going to and all those different um, things. So that's an interesting question. I think that problem of creating products in vacuum, Mm -hmm. I think I I keep seeing that regardless of the pandemic, right? Uh, And there's a disease, a product disease I talk about in the book, uh, which is narcissist complex. Where we're so focused on, you know, our own problems or looking inwards, uh, we're often thinking about scratching that itch that we might have, this problem we think needs solving, that we build this product in vacuum uh, because we feel like we know what we want, right? Um, And I've done this too at another startup where that I'd founded, like the first set of features were based on what I thought I would use. It just turned out that that's not what other consumers wanted. Um, yeah. And so that's to, to overcome that, we have to be very conscious about that particular disease and saying, well, are we, uh, are we doing enough user research? Are we testing what we're building with users to understand if it's actually meeting their need? Yeah. I mean, you point to when we begin the conversation, these are sometimes there's these outliers where outliers, I should say, who um, are just moving fast and Da, 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 moving fast, breaking things, the old cliche. And that's, those are really, when you look at aggregate, not necessarily the case across all these, it's more on these v- VC model, right? So what are some other things in the book that um, maybe we, we, we should touch, a, touch on on this or talk about? Uh, well, in the book, I talk about how we can very systematically build world-changing products uh, by starting with the vision, but then, well, what do you do with the vision? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that happens often, and I'll talk about maybe if there's one thing that I use all the time, it's this ability to use the vision in everyday decision making. Because what happens is, right, you have a vision, but it often gets filed away for posterity. And it's mm-hmm. not useful when you're making everyday dis- decisions. Very often it's like the the urgent business need or maybe the revenue for the quarter that you have to hit. That's what's driving decisions. And so... The way I uh, include the vision in everyday decision-making is by thinking about an X and a Y axis. So think about your Y axis being your vision and your X axis is survival. Because what you're really doing is you're balancing vision versus the short term. So vision is the long term and survival is the short term. And so things that are good for the vision and for survival, of course, those are ideal. Uh, But if you're always in that quadrant, then you're still being short-term driven because you're always thinking about survival. So sometimes you have to do things that are good for the vision and it's not good for survival. So for example, you know, if you're, let's say, refactoring code for three months, you're investing in the vision because without that, you're not going to be able to build other features. 
But, you know, in the short term, it's not helping you make more money and, and release mm. features. And sometimes, very rarely, you may end up having to take on what I call vision debt. That's similar to tech debt, but on the vision side, which means it's not good for your vision, but hey, it's helping you survive. So every time your customer, you know, asks for a custom feature, especially this happens so often in B2B, right? Um, They ask for a custom feature, you know, and it helps you maybe win that big deal. Hey, it's good for survival, but it's not good for your vision. And so if you keep doing that, you catch the product disease that I call obsessive sales disorder. And so you have to find the right balance across these quadrants. And this is how you can actually use your vision in everyday decision-making. And as a leader, as a founder, what is really good about using this approach is you're conveying to your whole team, how do you balance the long-term and the short-term? Maybe you're a bootstrapped startup and you're desperate, you need to take on more vision debt. But at least by acknowledging that this is vision debt, you're telling your team, guys, you know, I know that we want to do this vision, but right now we're desperate. We're going to take on some vision debt, but here's how we're going to actually invest in the vision later. So this sort of a discussion makes people not lose faith in the vision, but right. understand why we're doing what we're doing. When is uh, when do you know to kill a product? <laughs> Excellent question. Like maybe this is a question of when do you know that you truly have to pivot? Yeah. When you feel like you look at your vision statement uh, that you've written out and you feel like this is truly, you got the problem wrong. Uh, or your solution is absolutely wrong. When you've tried it, when you're vision-driven in your iterations, you've tried a few iterations, and you discover your answers were fundamentally wrong. And then you can either decide to pivot, but by the way, now you have a framework for when you want to pivot, you can point to what you did wrong and what you're going to try next in this vision. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one thing. So you could either pivot, or you decide that you were fundamentally completely wrong about the entire problem and the solution and even pivoting, like maybe you just have to start a fresh start a new company right. and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's when you have proof that this vision was wrong and it's really not going somewhere. Yeah. That's something that's really interesting to me. It's almost kind of this, this like, uh, I don't know if you said it, or maybe I'm just thinking of a survivor bias of just keep it going, right? And pivot, pivot, mm-hmm. pivot. And so I think, you know, something I've really been focusing on, and it's more on a service side, maybe not like a, a product necessarily kind of side of, of just taking that in. It's like, it's time to, time to kill it. <laughs> so, exactly. And you yeah. know, even when we talk about pivots, right, we talk about Twitter or Slack as pivots. Let's mm-hmm. actually look at what they discovered. Slack was a gaming company before they became Slack, right? It wasn't really a pivot. What they said was, our vision about being this gaming company, it's not working. We're mm-hmm. going to pivot. But in fact, it was not a pivot. It was really, we're going to discard this vision. We're going to create a new vision altogether and become Slack. So really, it was starting a new company. They decided to yeah. do exactly what you said, which is when you, when you say, when you call it quits on a product and start over, they did exactly that. I know you have like a toolkit that's available and in, in kind of complements the, the book or is it in it? I know you have a separate site. So I'm just... Now, where can folks kind of be uh, pointed more towards the work you do? And uh, I would love to get your thoughts as we end. What are you most excited about for next year in terms of companies building products? And I don't know if you've seen a big shift because of the way we work um, this year, especially for kind of knowledge workers. Yeah, I think 
there is a big shift that I see. Um, and that shift that I see is, you know, people are feeling burnt out. They want to feel like work is meaningful. Uh, and this whole, you know, great resignation, that, as people are calling it, that we're seeing, part of it is you're spending all this time. You want to feel like you're not just working on moving metrics up and to the right, that you're doing something meaningful, right? And all of what I just talked about in terms of understanding the vision, feeling like, you know, what change am I creating in the world? Yeah. All of that is becoming increasingly important if we want to avoid people feeling burnt out. Um, similarly, you know, today, a lot of how we manage people, it's all based on, you know, goals, goal setting and OKRs. And that just is, uh, in the book, I talk about how goals and goal setting actually comes with a lot of negative side effects. Um, and we have really just been so focused on using this approach because that's conventional wisdom. That's what we've always learned is how you achieve success. It actually turns out to be very flawed and research proves this out. There's this wonderful paper uh, written by researchers from Harvard, Wharton, Ellen School of Management and Kellogg. Um, they wrote a joint paper talking about, you know, the side effects of goal setting and why that's bad. And in the book, I explain what we can do instead. Uh, but all of these kind of are coming together at the moment with the pandemic um, to make us realize that we really need to think about how we both manage people and build products differently. How do we align teams better? Um, and, and so that's why I really feel like in the next year, companies will start to see the need for this and, and start to apply some of these ideas in a, in a more fundamental way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's obviously where um, some of the articles we see about the great resignation, we're all kind of maybe sick of them by now, but it is, I'm very, very curious how this is going to play out because I fear that things are just going to revert back, you know, to the way they were. And I'm really hoping it doesn't. So we'll, we'll kind of see. And then, and then, Getting back to, you know, where can people find more about your work and what you're doing and kind of learn more about you? Yeah. So uh, the book is on Amazon and any bookstore uh, near you. It's Radical Product Thinking, the new mindset for innovating smarter. Uh, also, you can get the free toolkit um, and the toolkit is on radicalproduct.com. If you get the audiobook, especially, you'll want the toolkit and you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'll send you some of the images in the audio book that are, that are not in the audiobook, uh, but you know, that you'll have access to it. It's helpful to just look at as you read the audiobook if you wanted. And then lastly, also, you know, I'm always happy to hear from people on LinkedIn. People can free, feel free to look me up, rather cut up. And uh, on LinkedIn, you know, I always love to hear stories of how people are applying this approach to create change in the world. So feel free to ping me and write your story. Well, Radhika, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And I'm looking forward to following you and see some of these uh, principles you put in your book become more common across as we get into next year. So thanks again. Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure talking with you, Dan, and thank you for having me on. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well. 